it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, October 14th, 2022. Happy Friday and welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor, also host of this fine program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We encourage you to listen live if you can across our great affiliates, including Extra 106.3 FM in Atlanta, where we're broadcasting from this week. Very excited to be here or any of our other great affiliates dotting this country. If you can't listen live, on the app or Fox Nation, all those various avenues. There's a podcast that is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media while you're at it, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I hope you will do that. Here's what we've got in store for you on today's show. In our final hour, the happy hour, Janice Dean is going to join us. I always look forward to chatting with her. In our middle hour, working backwards, Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin will be our guest. In that same middle hour, coming up just about one hour from right now, Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia, he's the incumbent here in the Peach State, fighting for re-election. Looks like that's going pretty well for him right now, but he's taking nothing for granted, trying to run through the tape. We will talk to him about Georgia politics coming up in our next hour. But we begin with another Republican governor, also up for re-election Governor Greg Abbott, Republican of Texas, joining us now. Governor, it's great to have you back on the show. Great to be back, Guy. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I've been dying to ask you about this. I know you've been a little busy, right? You've got some stuff going on in Texas. So we've been covering it from a distance here for a while. But we haven't spoken on the air really since the whole migrant busing and flying controversy blew up because you've been doing it for a while. We talked about it. I called it a stunt, but one that I thought made sense, maybe a successful stunt to force people to talk about an issue that a lot of them were just simply ignoring in the Democratic Party, their friends in the mainstream media. And it seems like as the weeks and months have passed, the success of what you pioneered has become more and more evident because not only have other Republican governors gotten on board and participated, just the anger, the impotent rage from people on the left trying to explain why what you're doing is so awful and cruel and evil, but then inadvertently they're talking about an issue that is not good for them because of their policies and then they can't, at least as far as I am concerned, they can't really explain why you're the bad guy in this as opposed to the people who are enabling this huge crisis that you're simply giving certain ju- jurisdictions, sanctuary cities, a small taste of. Did you ever expect when you first had this thought and decided to put it into action, did you ever expect that it would, I guess, work this well in terms of shining a spotlight on the problem? Well, it all started out actually just to help out local officials on the border in Texas. I was in a meeting of sheriffs and 
police chiefs and mayors of all the local communities down there like Eagle Pass, Del Rio, et cetera. Uh, and they were overwhelmed with the number of migrants that were being dumped off by the Biden administration. And they needed help. And so I said, listen, I'll take charge of this and I'll start relieving the pressures from you that you all are incapable of dealing with. And I'll start busing them to sanctuary cities across the United States of America. Of course, the first option was an easy choice. And that is the whole problem we have on the border was caused by Joe Biden. And Joe Biden has never been to the border to even see the chaos that he's created. Right. And so I chose to take the border to Joe Biden. And that's when we first started busing people to Washington, D.C. And then literally out of nowhere, the mayor of New York started complaining about me busing people to New York, which we had not been doing. But after he kept complaining about it, I thought, well, if he's going to keep complaining about it, I'm going to start taking credit for it. And that's when we started busing them to New York City, which also is a self-identified sanctuary city. And what's important here, Guy, is that this is not a Texas problem that's happening on the border. This is a problem for the United States of America that the United States of America as a whole must deal with in response to it. And that's exactly why New York and Chicago and Washington, D.C., and maybe some other locations need to be involved so they experience the, the, the challenges that are created by these open border policies. That they support. To say, oh, say, say it again. Yeah, I mean, they support these policies, but they don't want to actually grapple with the consequences of what they support. Exactly. And so it's pure hypocrisy on their part. Uh, they, they, they spout all these uh, leftist uh, ideolo- ideological agendas, like they want to have uh, open borders, they want to have sanctuaries to these, all that kind of stuff. But when they have to grapple with the realities of it, uh, it's not in my backyard approach. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, the, the mayor of New York and the mayor of D.C. and mayor of Chicago are, are saying. That's uh, exactly right. They, they have a responsibility to step up and start carrying their weight of the open border policies that have been created by Joe Biden's policies. You just name-checked a couple of cities. You said there might be some others. Do you have other destinations in mind that you're exploring? So we will explore options. We, we know that New York and Chicago and other places are getting overrun. You, you may have seen that Mayor Adams is asking for $1 billion to be able to deal with just a few thousand migrants. Listen, we get... Uh, as many in a day as he may get, uh, uh, you know, the entire time. Uh, and, and so it's just astounding. They think they need a, a billion dollars to deal with this. But it shows the magnitude of the problem that's created by the Biden administration. One interesting thing is, is my understanding that both the governors of New York and Illinois have uh, asked the White House to get more engaged in coming up with solutions for the board, which was one of the knock-on effects of what we did. Listen, we—, we Let's go back two and a half years. Uh, Under President Trump, we had the fewest border crossings two and a half years ago than we had in four decades. Uh, And now we have the highest number of illegal border crossings ever. There's more than 2.2 million people that came across just this past year. Uh, That is almost the size of Houston, Texas, in one single year. This is something that Texas cannot handle, something the United States cannot handle. Well, it's way more than double the entire population of Delaware. The president's home state, just to put that in perspective. In fact, the number of known gotaways since Biden took office exceeds the population of his entire home state. And I just want to focus in on something that you just mentioned. Some of the comments from these leaders, from these mayors, very angry at you. Seems like Mayor Lightfoot spends a lot of time coming after you, questioning if you're a Christian. 
uh, saying it's very cruel and, and non-Christian to bus these people to our sanctuary city. Then she put them immediately on buses and sent them off to the suburbs, which is sort of interesting. But you had officials in Washington, D.C. saying, well, he, they're trying to turn us into a border town. Like we, we we can't deal with this. We're not a border town. Mayor Adams in New York said that should, Texas should deal with this. Let them deal with the housing. We didn't ask for this. I I sometimes sit here and marvel that they are reading these or at least making these comments that it's almost as if they were written down by you begging them to say these things. And then they go and they say these things. Maybe they don't understand that they are precisely making the point that you were trying to make and they're doing it for you in the context of attacking you, which, number one, only fuels the national attention on a problem that needs a lot of attention and fixing. Number two, it probably can't hurt that much politically back home in Texas to have blue city mayors uh, mad at you because the people of Texas should be the ones who shoulder all of this. Certainly not the enlightened progressives in New York and elsewhere. Well, you're spot on. And, you know, you, you hear New York and Chicago say that uh, they can't handle this. Listen, they're, what, 100 times the size of Eagle Pass, Texas? Uh, talk about a community that cannot handle it. Is Eagle Pass, Texas or Del Rio, Texas, that uh, don't have the ability uh, to deal with these thousands of migrants who are coming across uh, every single day. New York actually does have the capability far better uh, than some small town in the state of Texas does. And they did ask for it in New York by self-declaring themselves uh, as a sanctuary city. But Kennedy, the thing that the mayor said in New York that said the best, he he actually said that he was going to try to get a bunch of New Yorkers to come down to Texas and, and <laughs> knock on doors in Texas uh, to campaign against me. Uh-huh. And I said, Brent, uh, I, I can't wait for them to show up in, in, in Tyler, Texas, or Midland, Texas, or wherever the case may be, and see how New Yorkers will be greeted uh, by someone in our community uh, from New York trying <laughs> mm-hmm. to tell us who to elect for governor in the Lone Star State. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense, though. I mean, all these New Yorkers are donating to your opponent. They should come down and knock doors, too. Why not? I mean, you know. If they're really all in for Beto, let's get New Yorkers for Beto down on the ground in the Lone Star State and see how that goes. Let's talk about the race that you're in right now, Governor. You mentioned President Biden has not been to the border. I think the White House admitted last year that the last time Joe Biden was really anywhere near the southern border was in 2008. So he hasn't been there since he was even vice president, let alone president, as he presides over this historic crisis that you've already outlined The person that he delegated, I mean, he has the DHS secretary who we had a story here at Fox this week that he knew that the whipping smear against Border Patrol agents was untrue. He participated in it anyway. That's one of the deputies on the border crisis in the Biden administration. The other, of course, is the vice president named Border Czar by President Biden. She was just in Texas last weekend. She paid your state a visit. She went to Austin. She did an abortion event and she did a fundraiser. And it's interesting. I didn't see your opponent anywhere near her when she was in town, when, of course, she didn't go down to the border when she had the opportunity. I find all of that rather interesting. I'd imagine you might, too. Well, of course, they're trying to run, and they, being people like Beto, are trying to run and hide as much as possible from the Biden administration, from Joe Biden himself, from Kamala Harris. Uh, But the amazing thing about Kamala Harris is she was also on a talk show this past week uh, saying that I was in dereliction of my duty by busing these migrants uh, to these cities. 
Listen, the people who are in dereliction of their duty uh, are the president and the vice president themselves, mm-hmm. but also uh, people like Beto, who's running uh, from Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. He cannot run uh, because uh, he fully embraced and supported Joe Biden for the president of the United States of America. But also equally important is Beto O'Rourke has embraced the open border policies that Joe Biden has embraced. He actually called for a reduction in immigration enforcement. Uh, he said, there, quote, there's no problem uh, on the border. He also said that he wanted to provide legal status uh, to 95 percent of those who are coming across the border illegally. So Beto O'Rourke would do nothing more than then fully embrace and be a part of Joe Biden's open border policy. Oh, my gosh. Like, Can you imagine just I think it's unlikely, but Beto O'Rourke as governor of Texas and Joe Biden as president, you look at the crisis as it is right now, where there's already these horrible incentives to have people come across the border illegally. If you get rid of one of the only officials at the border, you, that's actually trying to do something about it and, and fight back against it, against this huge tide, you have someone else who's basically embracing the Biden policy as the governor of Texas. I, I You almost can't even fathom how bad it would get. I don't think, as I said, it's terribly likely to happen. The polling shows you, Governor, ahead. Four to ten points is what I'm seeing in a lot of these surveys. Last question, how are you feeling about the race? Obviously, you you know, the, the, the data looks pretty good for you. You might want to be confident but not overconfident. How are you trying to make sure that Texans show up and vote and treat this election like it, you know, it really matters and it might be close, even as it seems like you're pulling away a little bit? Well, so if we know if we are able to turn out our voters, uh, we're going to win. But what threatens that is is the fact that uh, kind of as you suggested earlier, uh, Beto is getting most of his money from outside the state of Texas, including one point five million dollars from George Soros, uh, who supports uh, Beto's open border policies and defunded police policies. Uh, and because people from California, New York and Illinois and other states are funneling money, uh, including dark money uh, to uh, Beto or work, it's going to make the race closer than it should be. And that's why we're working overtime to make sure that uh, all Republicans in Texas, all independents in Texas who do not want to see open borders, who do not want to see police defunded, they need to get out and vote for me and make sure that I get reelected. Greg Abbott is the governor of Texas, a Republican up for reelection against Mr. O'Rourke. We talk about that race fairly frequently here. And, Governor, if we don't chat with you between now and November 8th, good luck. And I hope to have you back as the freshly, newly reelected governor of Texas sometime very soon. Look forward to it. Take care. Greg Abbott on The Guy Benson Show. What a start to this Friday program. Much more to get to, including the governor of this state where I'm broadcasting this week, Brian Kemp in Georgia. It's all ahead. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. As I mentioned at the top of the show and has been the case since Wednesday, we're broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia. Extra 106.3 FM, our great affiliate here, and it just so happens that tonight is the one and only debate in the U.S. Senate race between Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democrat, and Herschel Walker, who is the Republican nominee. And 
the kind of ebb and flow of this race has been interesting with Warnock ahead in the polling for months. And then in recent weeks, Herschel sort of scampering ahead into the lead in a number of different polls. And then some allegations coming out. We've talked about them a fair amount here on this show. And now Warnock is back surging into a very slight lead, but it's like two, three, maybe four points at the most. I saw one that had just a one-point race. A lot of these polls within the margin of error. And I think Georgians might not be tuning in to a Friday night debate en masse, but I think clips will go around, and we'll see how Herschel does this evening. I think that he has to clear a basic sort of eyeball bar of someone who could be a plausible senator, someone who knows the issues well enough to do the job and see how he responds to uh, some of these scandals and and accusations against him. We know how he's given interviews about it, a lot of denials, and it appears that he's taken a little bit of a hit in the polling down here. And that could be decisive in a very closely divided state. But if he regains some momentum, and obviously there's been bad news for the Democrats, Warnock is deeply personally flawed as well. And then he also has all the baggage and sort of, you know, the yoke and the anchor of Joe Biden and the Biden administration and the agenda that Warnock votes for basically every single time. When anything matters, Warnock is a reliable vote for Biden and Schumer. And he is to the left of this state. That's for sure. Our guest coming up in the next hour, Brian Kemp, the governor, he looks like he's on a path to win somewhat comfortably here in Georgia re-election. Is there enough ticket splitting that would happen to put Warnock over the top? I don't know. The margin might matter on Kemp's end. We'll see if Herschel can regain some of the ground that he seems to have lost. But there are some stakes tonight in this debate, maybe not quite as high as the debate we're going to see in Pennsylvania in a couple, what is it, the the 25th, Oz and Fetterman, their only debate. But it's a pretty big one here tonight in Georgia. We'll keep an eye on it. And if warranted, maybe mention it on Monday. But just something to keep an eye on in one of the most important races, one of the most important states in the country, which is part of the reason that we're down here this week. By the way, quick shout out Fox Business Network, our friends over there. I appear on that network all the time, celebrating today 15 years, a 15th anniversary, and they rang the NASDAQ opening bell earlier, the whole crew. I saw my friend Kennedy there, everyone clapping. How exciting. 15 years, they're crushing it in the ratings. Kudlow's the king of business cable. It's awesome to watch. Congrats, guys. Proud to be a small part of it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast every day. So we've really been 
walking through a bunch of races across the country with particular interest in Senate and governor races. And, of course, we talk about the House frequently as well. But one of the races that is extremely important is the Senate contest in Wisconsin. There's a very close governor's race there as well. We'll ask Congressman Gallagher about all of it coming up in the next hour. But I want to play a little bit of audio for you from the debate last night in the Senate race up in the Badger State. This is one where the Republicans have to win. It gets really, really hard to envision a path to a majority for the GOP in the U.S. Senate if Ron Johnson cannot win re-election. Now, the good news for Republicans is in the latest Marquette poll, which is seen as sort of the big, well-known poll in the state, The incumbent, the Republican Johnson, is up by six points, which is remarkable because until last month, Ron Johnson, over his decade-plus political career, had never had a single lead in a Marquette poll, ever, in none of his races. And he ran three times. He had never had a lead in this particular poll. Now, he won both times. In 2010, then again in 2016, he was trailing again over the summer. The August poll from Marquette had him down by seven points, Ron Johnson, to this guy, Mandela Barnes, who is the lieutenant governor in Wisconsin. And then there was an eight-point swing into September, Johnson up one. And then the new October numbers that came out this week has Ron Johnson now up by six points, which, I mean, it's like so good I'm skeptical of it. The way that Wisconsin is polarized these days, for anyone to win by six, it's, you know, in a controversial statewide race, it's almost unheard of. That would be a blowout by Wisconsin standards. But even if you say he's up by three or four, if Ron Johnson can win. Uh, that is a, a very crucial step nationally if you start looking at the pieces of the puzzle falling into place. Wisconsin, Ohio, New uh, North Carolina, Florida, those ones all have to stay in the red column. Now, part of the reason behind this big shift for Johnson and against Barnes is Johnson was getting outspent. The Democrats were hammering Ron Johnson. And then as voters started to focus on this race, the Republicans started spending money and just showcasing exactly who Mandela Barnes is. He is a radical left wing extremist. They cleared the field for him on the Democratic side. They're like, oh, let's all drop out, endorse this guy. He's our man. Seems like, you know, pretty bad call on their part, given all of the vulnerabilities that this guy has. He is, especially with crime being such an issue, his record is awful. He is so bad, Mandela Barnes, on defund the police and, you know, abolish ICE and no cash bail, all of this stuff defending in some ways almost fueling the rioting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, based on an anti-police lie in the summer of 2020. This is what Mandela Barnes has been up to. He is so bad on these issues. I've mentioned this before. His campaign was trying to find one single law enforcement officer on active duty, someone who's an active cop, law enforcement officer anywhere in the state of Wisconsin. There's like 13,000 of them in the state of Wisconsin. They were trying to find one to endorse Mandela Barnes in this race, and they couldn't. They listed 
two on their website had to take both of the names down because they hadn't really endorsed. Imagine being so bad on this issue set that you can't even find a single law enforcement officer. This was as of last month, not one in the whole state to endorse you. Now, part of the reason might be not only is Mandela Barnes extremely bad on these issues, it's probably unhelpful to him that the Waukesha Christmas parade killer is in the courtroom this week and carrying on and taking his shirt off and all this stuff, just drawing more attention to that case, someone who should have never been out and then drove his SUV into a Christmas parade and killed a bunch of people and and hurt others as well. To have someone on the statewide ticket running for U.S. Senate so bad on crime with that sort of as the split screen in the state, a very high profile trial, which is sort of underscoring the whole problem. It's just not a great confluence of events for Mandela Barnes, but a very richly deserved one for him. And we learned this week a story I saw yesterday in the Wisconsin media. Barnes hasn't just voted for these things and advocated for these crazy things. He has also bad-mouthed American law enforcement, not just in his capacity as an activist and then lieutenant governor, but also he went on Russia propaganda television to attack American law enforcement. Here's the story from uh, this, I think it was the Milwaukee Journey, uh, Journal Sentinel, out there who broke this story. Mandela Barnes, quote, offered his harsh words about American law enforcement to a Russian-funded media outlet. Records show that Barnes did six interviews with RT, formerly Russia Today, in 2015 and 2016 during his second term as a state lawmaker. RT is a Russian state-controlled international news television network funded by the Kremlin. So this is Russian propaganda. That's the point of the network. And Mandela Barnes would show up there and attack U.S. law enforcement. In fact, in July of 2016, remember this, five police officers had been shot dead in Dallas. An anti-police deliberate attack. We saw in Connecticut this week, relatedly, someone calling the police, luring them to a home with a false claim about a domestic incident to ambush and murder two of them. There were five Dallas police officers shot dead in July 2016 in that terrible incident. And Mandela Barnes went on Russia propaganda TV and criticized the police, like victim blaming to some extent. Police officers across the country haven't reformed their patterns and practices, he said, right after these officers were killed in cold blood. He said police are over-exercising their badges. He thanked RT publicly for interviewing him. He also said in one of these interviews that the Black Lives Matter riots that turn violent are, quote, a human reaction to the police. That is just defending and justifying violent criminality. Like, hey, that's what happens. Human reaction, police racism, people are going to do what they're going to do. Same guy who smeared the cops in Kenosha, blaming them falsely based on lies in a narrative that turned into two nights of horrible, deadly rioting. That's Mandela Barnes. The hand-picked, like, coronated Senate nominee for the Democrats in Wisconsin. 
He questioned the blackness of black police officers and their commitment to their community. So this guy not only has these terrible, I think, destructive and dangerous views. He was happy to go on a Kremlin funded propaganda network to attack U.S. law enforcement in that context, which is quite something. And then by the time 2017 rolled around and it was Russia, 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 here was Mandela Barnes. There's tweets of him talking about Russian propaganda, very dangerous, Trump, all this stuff. I guess he only likes Russian propaganda when he's appearing on it to attack men and women in blue. So at their debate last night, Senator Johnson brought this up toward the end of one of his answers, this pattern of his opponent going on Russia TV, Russia Today, RT, to attack law enforcement and cut 22, Johnson made sure that voters heard about it. But also we have to support law enforcement. You don't go on Russian Today TV and denounce law enforcement. Which is what he did. Repeatedly. Johnson also made the case, and this goes back to sort of what John Fetterman's been up to in Pennsylvania. Fetterman and Barnes are similar on these criminal justice issues, although, I mean, I don't think... Mandela Barnes ever chased down an innocent black jogger with a shotgun. I don't think Mandela Barnes ever vandalized a black owned business. That's what Fetterman has done in those cases. But Barnes is way out there, has said all this stuff, and then is just hoping that people won't notice and just kind of pretends like it's all a lie or waves it off like it's not true. These are Republican attacks. Ron Johnson making the case in this debate last night, and just going through the list, cut 23. One thing you have to do is you have to keep violent criminals in jail, and you have to support law enforcement. Now, unfortunately, you know, we have an administration in Wisconsin right now that their goal was to reduce the prison population by 50%. They reduced it 15%, including paroling 884 criminals. 784 were violent, including 44 child rapists, 270 criminals who either committed or at least attempted murder. So keep violent criminals in jail. You know, one of the things you use is cash bail, and there's an effort here to eliminate cash bail. Uh, but also we have to support law enforcement. There's another moment in this debate that I want to play for you as well. And again, there are certain echoes of the Senate races between or echoes between, I should say, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where in Pennsylvania and John Fetterman, I'll talk more about him in the next segment, portraying himself as this working class guy, working class hero, working class champion. Guy doesn't work. What the working class does is work. They work hard. John Fetterman works very hard to look like he might fit in, but he doesn't really work. Mommy and daddy give him tens of thousands of dollars every single year to have his lifestyle, to be a, you know, a political activist or whatever the hell he was doing with his time. And they did this all the way until he was almost 50. Can you imagine getting tens of thousands of dollars just like to pay your bills as an able-bodied, like, working age individual, 49 years old? running a city that was failing further into the ground and then becoming lieutenant governor. That was like, you know, they they like to reward 
failure, it feels like, sometimes over on the left. Nothing about this guy's CV suggests that he should be lieutenant governor of anything, let alone a United States senator. That's what Fetterman's been up to, not really contributing to society through actual work. And Ron Johnson making the case that there's a familiar dynamic at play in his state, up in the Badger State as well, cut 24 from the debate last evening. This election offers a very clear choice. I have a lifetime experience raising a family, building a business, creating good-paying manufacturing jobs right here in Wisconsin. I've worked hard all my life. I began my tax-paying career at the age of 15 as a dishwasher at Walgreens Grill. I worked full-time paying my way through college. I worked all shifts starting my business. As your U.S. Senator, my tax cuts for more than 20 million tax filers help small businesses compete with the big guys and survive the pandemic. My right to try law is saving lives. And my Joseph Project has transformed lives by helping people to get really good paying jobs. In stark contrast, my opponent has little to no work experience in the private sector. And other than hollow left-wing rhetoric, I'm not sure what he's ever accomplished or really what he has to offer. I mean, that's a pretty tough assessment, but is he that wrong? I mean, you look at this man's record, Mandela Barnes, and there's other stuff you could even get into. All these, like, security, all the taxpayer money he spent on security and these trips he would take. Uh, There's sort of a whole font of information about him out there. Looks like he's losing in this race right now. See if the people of Wisconsin see that through. But I sometimes sit back and wonder how much more dramatic could the margin be? How much bigger could the margin be for Ron Johnson right now if there were an even close to fair news media out there? And on that point, I will close the segment with this. It's just like beyond parody. The New York Times had a preview of the debate last night, Johnson versus Barnes. And they added a little infographic. Here's a photo of Ron Johnson with a red circle and Mandela Barnes with a blue circle. And here's how they described the setup for last night's debate. New York Times. Senator Johnson, a leading peddler of misinformation, will debate the Lieutenant Governor Barnes, a liberal Democrat who has been touted as one of the party's rising stars. Just some straight down the middle unbiased journalism there from the New York Times. Oh, you've got this misinformation merchant against a rising star. I wonder who they're rooting for. (laughs) It is helpful that they're so unsubtle. And as I always say, the closer it gets to an election, the deeper blue the jerseys are. They sleep in their blue jerseys, these journalists. They look around and they don't understand why people don't trust them and don't just automatically bow down to their appeals to authority. It's because of this kind of stuff. And the stuff that they're trying to do in Pennsylvania, which we'll get to next on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. I mentioned we would talk about Pennsylvania here. We were mentioning the whole health transparency issue revolving around John Fetterman, which is, you know, like item number 17 for me on importance, given this guy's record and his beliefs. But it's interesting because he is actively withholding his health records. 
Just trust him in a six-month-old doctor's note. He's fine. And NBC was the first outlet to interview him this week in person. And the reporter just told the audience in some of our small talk before the interview, before he had closed captioning to read, it seemed like he was having some trouble following the conversation. And a bunch of people, including journalists, very angry at the journalist for telling the truth about what she experienced with her crew. The mayor, or excuse me, the wife of John Fetterman, former mayor, she's out there attacking the journalist. Oh, she should apologize, ableism, da, 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 da. Is that a vicious, dangerous attack on our democracy, attacking journalists? No, it's fine, as long as the Democrat doing something to help him or her win. I mean, that's how it goes. They're circling the wagons, journalists circling the wagons against one of their own colleagues to protect a Democrat who is actively withholding information from them. And they're like, yay, go, John. It is rude to ask about any of this. Boo. The New York Times had an op-ed that they published. The original headline was, John Fetterman is a disabled American who needs technology to do his job. So what? And there's been this all-hands-on-deck effort just to disqualify any of this criticism. But they can't decide, like, is he disabled or is he fine? Part of the argument is he's fine, he's recovered, he's recovering, get over it, he's, he's doing okay. There's no real question here. But here's an op-ed saying, oh, he's a disabled American. Well, whoops, the headline was quickly changed. Same piece, they changed it to why that John Fetterman interview caused a furor. That's a very different headline. They're trying to, like, get their talking points straight. The goal, of course, is to protect him and get him elected. That's what we know. And guess who's coming to PA to help him? Help, quote-unquote, Joe Biden. Well, those two together, that could be something. Ooh, another hour coming up next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting live from Atlanta, 106.3 FM Extra, our fantastic affiliate here in this neck of the woods. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, free every day. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us on one or both platforms if you're interested. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. Well, the Dow raced up yesterday, and now it's like, never mind. Back down big today, closing down 403 points and ending the week again below the 30,000 mark at 29,635. So inflation and recession jitters all over the place, obviously. Joining us now once again is the governor of this state, Georgia's 83rd governor, Republican Brian Kemp, who is seeking re-election. He's on the ballot November 8th. And, Governor, great to be in your state and great to have you here. I'm going to the Bulldogs game tomorrow. Hey, go dogs! Great to be back on with you, guys. Thanks Great. for having me. Beautiful. Very happy. Very Beautiful happy to have you here. here. It is. It's a the weather's better than it was when I arrived, 
the Braves game got delayed, but they got it in. They got the win, and now we'll see if we can make it 2-0 and sports-wise on this trip while I'm here. Uh, and grateful to have some of your time here. I know that you're busy. You're in the thick of this re-election fight. I wanted to get your reaction, and I played this clip earlier in the week, and I was very eager to play it for you. I know you've seen it. Stacey Abrams has this ad that she's running against you where she's trying to claim that you are responsible for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game getting yanked out of this state last year based on her boycotts and her lies about the law in question. Here's part of that ad, Cut 27. Brian Kemp's far-right politics have really cost us. We lost the All-Star Game over his restrictive voting laws, and it cost Georgia businesses $100 million. Music Midtown pulled the plug over his dangerous gun laws. And yeah, so cost on and on it goes, right? A dangerous, you know, the gun dangerous. He's trying to tie crime to you. The All-Star Game, which was a direct result of her agitation, she's trying to put that on you. It's just kind of amazing the... The pattern of behavior with this particular individual to take losses, for example, like her 2018 loss to you in an election. Another example, her comprehensive loss in court a few days ago in front of a, an Obama appointed judge lost on every single argument they were trying to make. Uh, the loss here of the All-Star game. She tries to take those actual bona fide losses and spin them into wins for herself. It's it's. Pretty remarkable. It is absolutely shameless, and I wonder if you think people here in Georgia are buying it. Oh no, they're definitely not buying it. We have uh, Marty and I. We've been on our bus all week. We've made I don't know five, six stops a day all over this state, and a few folks have mentioned that ad to me, and they're furious because they know exactly the opposite is true. But guy, what's dangerous is Stacey Abrams' positions and what she said uh, in the past and during this campaign saying she wants to defund the police in cash bail. You know, when I opened the economy, she said I shouldn't have done that. We said no to her on that. We said no to her when we pushed to get her kids back in the classroom, which is what the data in the Trump administration and the data now in the Biden administration says our kids need to be there. Uh, and just many other positions. It's it's uh, almost insane that she would even run a commercial like that. But that quite honestly shows how desperate she is. And she's just trying whatever she can to distract from the real issues that are out there. And you just talked about it on your opening. Stock market's crashing. Mortgage rates are going up. We got 40-year high inflation. Gas prices are starting to go back up. And the House of Cards is falling for the Democrats because of their bad policies that she supports, that this president has implemented. And that's what Georgians don't want to come to our state. That's why we're fighting for the soul of our state, to make sure that doesn't happen. You also got to remember 90% of her money's coming from California, New York, and Washington, D.C., and national unions and other places. And that's why we need your listening audience to be in the fight with us and go to BrianKemp2022.com and help us fight back. You know, it strikes me as you talk about that record in the Biden administration and Stacey Abrams' lockstep support for basically all of it. It seems to me that the only thing she might be upset about with Joe Biden, nothing to do with his policies, she's just upset that she's not his vice president right now, right? I mean, she wanted to be his vice president after she lost to you. She lied incessantly about that. She's trying to pretend like she didn't, by the way. She's got a new story about 2018. Oh, no, I was I was talking about how it wasn't a fair fight, really, but I never said that I did won or that he wasn't governor. She said it was a stolen election. 
And she's trying to pretend that she didn't say that. She's trying to pretend that her boycott and Jim Crow stuff didn't get the All-Star game tossed out of this state stupidly by Major League Baseball. Somehow that was, you know, your fault. She's trying to claim, like, some of the crazy stuff that she's argued on crime is stuff that she never said. It's just this whole series of revisions about what she said, what she did, what she really meant. It it strikes me from an outsider watching from a distance like this is an awful lot of fail of well failing yes but flailing too. Yeah, it reminds me of the you know flip flop ad that George W. Bush or <laughs> uh, Ford Bush forty three ran against John Kerry. You know yes. that windsurfing board yes. going back and forth. I mean, she's changed her position on all these things. I mean, another good example, guy. Well, I've been focused on with the General Assembly here is helping Georgians fight through 40-year high inflation and a disaster at the gas pump. You know, she didn't like it when we sent a billion-dollar tax refund to our citizens. She didn't like it when uh, we suspended the gas tax here, which has been suspended since March. Georgians are saving 30 cents a gallon. And now she's saying that we need to do more of those things. And I was like, well, thank you. That was my idea. We can figure (laughs) out what we need to be doing in our state without your advice, because you're the one that wanted us to not reopen our economy. You didn't want our kids to be in the classroom. You wanted to defund the police and end cash bail and, you know, really create this environment that we've seen in other states where you could go gamble somewhere, but you couldn't have your church open. And she was, you know, she railed against me keeping our religious uh, establishments open as well and putting that in the hands of our people and letting them be, you know, the ones that decide what they did and what they didn't do in, in regards to their health care and whether they go to church or not, not the government. And the problem is she just thinks just the opposite. She thinks she can make those decisions better for our citizens uh, than they can make for themselves. And I don't believe that. And I think that's why we're going to do very well on November the 8th. No, oh, and even recently, a few months ago, you and I talked about it. She still felt like little kids should be required to wear masks when they're in school, but not when they're around her. I mean, yes, they're masked. She's not that famous photograph on and on it goes. And some of the themes that you're hitting here in our interview, you guys on your campaign crystallized in your own ad that I saw where it's it's hard hitting, but it's based on the issues you're making the case. We'll listen to cut 32 an ad that Kemp for governor has out here in Georgia saying the reason this state is thriving and doing as well as it is in a lot of ways. I know she doesn't agree. She called it the worst place in the country to live, uh, which I know you disagree with. But a lot of Georgians are happy with the way things are going. And the reason that things are going well is because the policies you have pursued as governor are the opposite of what she's been advocating here for years. Thirty two. We'll listen to this together. Why is Georgia outperforming the rest of the nation? Because we said no to everything Stacey Abrams wanted to do. She demanded more COVID lockdowns. She wanted schools and businesses closed, like in California. Abrams wanted to eliminate cash bail, pushing the same scheme that's fueling crime in New York. And Abrams wanted job-killing higher taxes over and over and over again. Georgia's doing better because we didn't do any of the things Stacey Abrams wanted. I think it's a really good ad. It makes the point clearly. I guess the challenge that I'm curious about, I've been down here for a couple days. I cannot avoid political ads. It's just everywhere. I know you know this. How do you try to break through some of that where it's just, you know, people are inundated. I'm sure a lot of Georgians are up to their eyeballs, sick of this stuff. How do you break through with the message without just, you know, oversaturating? Because a lot of people at some point tune out. 
Yeah, and I think that's what happened, quite honestly, over the summer. I mean, uh, Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams sent, sent, you know, had so many ads playing at nauseum, just saying the worst things and how bad our state is and how bad, you know, Herschel Walker is. And she was saying how bad I was. And I think people just get tired of that. I mean, people aren't feeling that in their everyday lives here in Georgia. I mean, they're getting up and they're going to work every day. You know, their kids are in the classroom. People in Georgia right now are getting ready for Friday night lights and playing football uh, here, looking forward to the Braves winning this afternoon and looking forward to Georgia and Georgia Tech and many of other colleges here winning on the gridiron tomorrow. And so they just not buying that. I mean, they know what the truth is. And I think that's why a lot of these ads, even though she's spent, just it's incredible how much money she's raised and how much she's outraised us. But people just don't believe that. No matter how many ads you play, you can't make believe some make people believe what they know is not true. Yeah. And we've been, you know, we've been telling them the truth, and that's why we're going straight to the voters, guy. I mean, it's it's hard to penetrate uh, messages when you have as much as we have going on politically. In yeah, Georgia. but face so to face, why. it's a little bit easier, which is why you're on this bus tour. And plus, some of the stuff she's gaslighting about and distorting, it's recent history. We all remember it. I think that's part of the problem she's running into. Big race here in Georgia. We're watching it closely. It's the Guy Benson Show. Governor, thank you very much. I'm Guy Benson, back here on this Friday. One thing that's been interesting to watch in our political discourse now for years, I mean, basically as long as I've been following politics, is the frantic denunciations that we get from almost exclusively the left in the Democratic Party on the issue of voter ID laws, which have been upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court, not just the right wing illegitimate Supreme Court, which is how they frame it occasionally, right? I saw and I mentioned on the show yesterday that the Supreme Court had apparently unanimously declined to side with President Trump in this dispute over the Mar-a-Lago raid and the documents. They turned down his request, all of them, and we didn't get a bunch of screeching about how illegitimate they were and how they were just corrupt and in the pocket of Trump or whatever. So I guess they were briefly re-legitimized for a couple of hours because the left got the outcome that they wanted, and then it'll be back to illegitimate as soon as necessary, right? This is how they think. This is how sophomoric and results-oriented their thinking is on these matters. But the voter ID case that I'm referencing was years ago now, 6-3 decision authored by John Paul Stevens, a famous lefty on the court. Big, liberal, progressive, Northwestern grad, actually, for better and for worse. But he authored that opinion, that voter ID laws, in that case in Indiana, are constitutional. They're also widely supported and commonsensical. If we want to have free and fair and reliable elections to ask voters to prove that they are who they say they are, and that they are eligible voters to cast ballots, it's just basic. Opposing that as racism or suppression or poll taxes or all these crazy arguments that they've trotted out for many years at this point, I just think it's so self-defeating. It doesn't make sense. Intuitively, the American people 
understand in a lopsided way that voter ID laws are basic safeguards and provisions, and they're broadly unobjectionable to the American electorate. And yet you have so many Democrats, cycle after cycle, demonizing and demagoguing such efforts on voter integrity, like basic level stuff like ID, and they try to turn it into this big racially motivated conspiracy theory by conservatives. Never mind the fact that all of the polling shows not only a huge margin in favor of voter ID laws among the public writ large, but also clear majorities of people of color. Like, they're not buying any of this either. It's really a power game for the Democrats. It has nothing to do with substance. The reason I bring all of this up is we've had big, angry debates and finger-pointing over suppression and all this stuff. Here in Georgia, Stacey Abrams has been sort of the personification of that hysteria. And then she tries to run away from previous positions. And, oh, no, I didn't say that. Oh, I don't really mean that. No, no, I'm for this, but not for that. A lot of it is just pure, shameless revisionism. As she's getting her clock cleaned, it would seem. But earlier today, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, he tweeted out a Gallup poll which asked the American people about various elements of our elections and what they support. And unsurprisingly, there was wide support for early voting, for example, which for a very long time was not allowed in places like Delaware and New York, right, or at least heavily restricted in ways that it's not in redder states like Georgia, for example. You had people just yelling and screaming and caterwauling about suppression and all this stuff because Georgia had changed their laws a little bit and reformed their elections a bit in ways that were still much more generous and much more permissive than in these blue states and the way the blue states had operated for a very, very long time without a peep of concern from some of the people raising all of these howls and hackles. Delaware, some of the most restrictive in the whole country, President Biden's home state. So early voting's popular. Not surprised. I'm not opposed to early voting. I do think it gets to be a bit much when you have like a month of it. We have voting starting before there's even a debate between candidates. I think we should not have election month. We should have election day and maybe a couple weeks of early voting. I think that should be more than sufficient for people to get their ballots. And that's sort of where I come down. But I'm not against early voting. So I'm squarely in a huge majority on that. And then guess what else they polled, among other things? Voter ID laws. Are you in favor or against voter ID laws? You show a photo ID. Yep, I'm an eligible voter. I'm the person who I say I am. I can vote in this election. And then you get your ballot. Want to know? what the percentages were on that one, 79% approve, 21% disapprove. This is an 80-20 issue. And yet a shocking number of the elected Democrats in this country, and certainly a big proportion of the activist class, they are among the 21%, loudly beating the drum as they have for a very long time, racism, suppression, poll tax, racism, suppression, poll tax. And how has that worked for them? That messaging? Well, the Gallup poll speaks for itself. 
79% of Americans, 79% are in favor of photo IDs in order to vote. They have lost this argument, an argument that they deserve to lose. I hope they keep making it. I hope they keep sticking with this losing argument because people ask themselves, why are these people so committed to defeating photo ID? Why are they so against that? What is their motive there? Could there be an ulterior motive? It's just not a popular idea. So keep going with it. Your arguments have uh, borne fruit for the other side. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show on this Friday, glad you're here from Atlanta, Georgia. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, always free. Bonus Benson coming up on the weekends, as always. Joining us now, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican from Wisconsin, the 8th Congressional District in the Badger State. And, Congressman, it's good to have you back here. Great to be with you, Guy. I did have to ask you, perchance, I'm just curious off the top, did you get the opportunity to wake up early last Sunday and watch the football contest over in London? I did. Uh, we hosted our family here, and it was very bizarre to be, you know, having Irish coffee and serving mimosas at about 8 in the morning. I joked with my brother-in-law that they were welcome to come to the tailgate that started at 5 a.m. in my lawn in the cold. But uh, <laughs> Which is actually – that is not far-fetched. Like, in terms of Wisconsin football and drinking culture, a 5 a.m. pregame tailgate outdoors on your lawn is not even necessarily a joke. Uh, it's encouraged, and, um, you know, <laughs> we, there's a big ice fishing culture in Wisconsin, and as far as I can tell, ice fishing is just an excuse to drink beer on the ice uh, starting very early in the morning. See, now you've just been so delightful and kind in response to what was – attempted trash talk from me a Giants fan and you've just sidestepped the whole thing now I feel bad so I guess we should talk about real things now you win the exchange although not the football game as it turns out Uh, let's talk about the Biden administration's new national security strategy that they put out I saw you had a post about this fairly lengthy statement in response to what the Biden team has released give us sort of your bottom lines Well, you know, the reality is in the last few decades, these strategies, particularly when they're put out in unclassified form, have become less of of a strategy, per se, in terms of linking ends, ways and means in pursuit of clear goals and more of a a wish list of things we'd like to accomplish. And they're sort of written in in very academic uh, prose with too many adjectives and adverbs. But in 2018, something remarkable happened. There was there was a, a strategy that the Trump administration put out. That was actually, you know, close to a a strategy, and it was a remarkable shift in U.S. foreign policy, prioritizing China for uh, the first time as a primary threat. Now, in some ways, this strategy does continue to talk tough on China, and there there are certainly aspects in which the Biden administration has continued Trump's more aggressive policy towards China, particularly when it comes to export controls on semiconductors and things like that. But the problem with the strategy, as I see it, as I read it, is what they're saying in almost every page is that the real existential threat we face 
is not China. China's a competitor. They kind of have all this conflicted language. The existential threat we face is climate change. And climate change is everywhere in this document. It's mentioned about 63 times, I think. China's mentioned about 12 times. And the problem is, and I say this as someone, you know, I'm I'm all for taking a responsible approach to climate. In my mind, that means you got to invest in in nuclear and natural gas, and you got to end this war on, on domestic energy production. But the problem is that if you sort of side with the John Kerry wing of the administration that says climate change is the big thing, it kind of leads you into this temptation that we can cooperate with China when it comes to climate change. But, of course, the Chinese Communist Party has no interest in reducing their emissions. They've repeatedly used the prospect of cooperation, not just on environmental issues, but on stability in the Korean Peninsula, on nonproliferation more broad- broadly, in order to lock in wins at our expense. And so my bottom line is that because the strategy elevates transnational threats as strategic priorities as opposed to nation states themselves, I worry we're falling into this dangerous trap of emphasizing cooperation with our adversaries as opposed to hardcore competition, as opposed to recognizing that we are in the early stages of a new Cold War uh, and we cannot uh, sort of wish that our adversaries would, would have the same values and interests that we do. Well, I mean, I think what's disturbing about it is if you were to sit in the Politburo in Beijing and listen to the higher echelons of the CCP talk very candidly about their goals, the Chinese Communist Party and the government that they run and the country that they control, they would say, I think, if they were being completely frank, that they want to supplant the United States as the global superpower as soon as possible, and they are deadly serious about doing that. And if the United States' response to that is, well, we hope not, and they're a challenge and they're going to be a competitor, that's for sure. But the much bigger problem that we face, the much bigger challenge is climate change. It just feels like even if you are fully on board with man-made climate change as a huge problem for the planet and various policies to combat that, if if that is the priority of the U.S. government, when it would absolutely, obviously not be the priority of the Chinese government, which would like to overtake us as a global hegemon, that imbalance favors them, disfavors us. And I think that is not only bad news for global security, peace, prosperity, etc. It is also bad news for the planet and for the climate. Because the Chinese Communist Party, they don't really care about those things. They care about power. And if they were to take over as the global dominant power, it would be worse for the environmental movement. I just wonder if they ever think about it that way. No, they really have blinders on when it comes to their sort of Green New Deal faction in their party. And that's, that's I guess, what worries me the most about the document. You sort of read it. It reads very conflicted. You can tell that there's a tension between what I call the Kerry wing and some other people in the administration that have a more realistic view of the world. But if you elevate the Green New Deal to the level of grand strategy, you're going to get bad outcomes. So if you then dig into, okay, what is the actual strategy they lay out for China and for Russia? They talk about three things. First, expanding investments in underlying sources of American power. Second, growing our alliances. And third, modernizing and strengthening our military. It's no accident that hard power, military modernization, comes last despite the strategy's promise that we're going to act urgently to strengthen deterrence. Listen, all you need to do is look at the Biden defense budget request to understand 
just how little sense of urgency they have when it comes to hard power. And the reality, Guy, is that all the energy in the administration is dedicated to that first bucket of domestic priorities in general and the, sort of the Green New Deal priorities in particular. Um, there's, you, you can just you read the document. There's a, there's a laundry list uh, of items that are left-wing priorities. I mean, the, the strategy explicitly calls out the Inflation Reduction Act for rooting out systemic disparities. And <laughs> I mean, it talks about pursuing executive action on immigration. Like, what is that doing in a national security strategy? That, it, just, it just shows you – in fact, they're bragging about the fact in the fact sheet they put out that they've sort of broken down the wall between domestic and foreign policy. Okay, that's true, and it's bad news for foreign policy. It means that foreign policy is now reflecting domestic progressive priorities. Now, it seems like a political document with some people fighting for it internally to remain a national security document and only partially succeeding in that goal. That's how it at least seems to me based on this conversation. I do want to ask you about Iran. I saw a quote today from John Kirby at the NSC saying that the United States and the Biden administration is, quote, not near reentering a nuclear deal with the Iranian regime. They've been trying. Boy, they've been trying negotiating with concession after concession via the Russians of all people with a regime that is actively killing and suppressing women in the streets in Iran, incredibly courageous women speaking out against the regime. All the while, the Biden administration has just kept plucking away at that potential nuclear deal, but Kirby at least conceding this week that We're not really that close to getting a deal. I think that's good news. I think all the reports about what a deal could look like, those contours seemed extremely weak and problematic and actually rather alarming. And to be engaged in these talks while the regime is doing what it is doing, unsurprisingly, this is how they are, uh, when it comes to the women in that country, I just feel like it ought to be time to recognize reality for what it is and walk away from this total farce that they've been participating in, I think, for far too long. I wonder if there's a chance that might finally happen. I don't, I don't want to get overly optimistic here. Well, it, it is good that they, they've recognized they're far away. And the administration has really been bugged by reality, Iranian political reality. I mean, the hardliners simply won't take the overly generous deal that the administration has repeatedly offered them. And for the Biden administration, they can't have it both ways. Either they support the people of Iran, and again, to connect it to the national security strategy. One of the themes in there is that we're in this competition in the decisive decade between autocracy and democracy. So if that's your view of the world, that it's democracy led by the U.S. against evil autocrats around the world— Well, then you have to support the people in Iran who are rising up against their autocratic and oppressive regime. Well, Uh, And maybe maybe you don't want to intervene militarily. What does supporting the people in Iran look like? And as we've spoken about on this show with a number of guests recently, including Morgan Ortegas, formerly of the State Department under Mike Pompeo and President Trump, she said step one in supporting the women in Iran in particular is to not enrich further the regime that's oppressing them. I mean, that seems like a pretty sensible step number one here. A hundred percent. Yeah, again, no no one's suggesting that, you know, we invade Iran, uh, you know, but there are many things short of actual 
military intervention, many tools in our arsenal that range from rhetorical support for uh, those who are, are protesting against the regime to actual financial support, to providing them access to data uh, and Internet access in the regime. But the, the easiest thing they could do right now is just simply to walk away from the negotiating table, which, by the way, we're not even allowed to sit at the same table with the Iranians. They refuse to negotiate with us directly. Right. We have to negotiate through the Russians, of all people. <laughs> Uh, in Geneva in order to try and get a deal. That tells you how absurd the current situation is, that we are dependent on Russia for diplomacy with Iran. Um, and every yeah, day the administration Russia. leaves the door. Yes. Uh, every day amazing. the administration leaves the door open to a nuclear deal is a day that they're standing against the people that you see in the streets. So I think we just need to make it clear that, listen, they can say, hey, we tried, but, you know, unfortunately, the Iranians don't want to deal. We're walking away. We're going to reimpose maximum pressure on the regime, and we stand firmly with the people that are are, are risking their lives uh, in opposition to that oppressive regime. Congressman Gallagher, quickly on domestic politics, we spoke earlier in the show about the Senate race in your state. I am still not quite over the fact that the Democrats intentionally cleared the field for Mandela Barnes, but that's a choice they made. Seems like it is not working out terribly well for them. Sort of a drumbeat of oppo research on him. He has just been floundering in the polls as voters get to know him more. Seems like Senator Johnson is a favorite now for reelection relatively clearly. Uh, you can agree or disagree with that if you'd like. And the polling also shows that the gubernatorial contest is tied. I mean, it is absolutely deadlocked in your state. And I just wonder how you see those races going in a couple of weeks. Well, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic about Ron Johnson's race. In Wisconsin, you know, we're a purple state, so nothing – Nothing is easy. You can't take anything for granted. But uh, Senator Johnson's working very hard. And you're right. Uh, in Mandela Barnes, they nominated the worst possible candidate. I mean, given that uh, crime and public safety and support for law enforcement is a top three issue, he is the worst possible candidate they could have nominated, given his long and deep history of advocating for defunding the police, abolishing ICE, and just the horrific things he said when the Kenosha crisis happened in Wisconsin in terms of blaming it on the police. He went out there and said it was a vendetta carried out against the black community mm -hmm. by the police. I mean, just disqualifying comments that show you how out of the mainstream he is. Add on, you know, what's the other big issue? Inflation, economic concerns. And, uh, you know, Mandela Barnes is more progressive than Tammy Baldwin, if you can believe it. He'd well, be he's bringing Bernie Sanders in. He's bringing in like his closer here is Bernie Sanders. It, uh, un uh, unbelievable. So that that race, uh, I, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic about governor's race is a little tighter. Uh, but similarly, uh, you know, our incumbent governor, Tony Evers, his comments around Kenosha were also uh, horrific. He's been uh, less of a progressive firebrand and more of just a non-entity at a time when the state needs leadership, particularly over the past years during the pandemic. He's really been been absent. And for a lifelong educator, I mean, he was our state superintendent. Uh, he's a lifelong educator. He has done nothing to prioritize the crisis in education that we're seeing here in Wisconsin. Our test scores are so troubling. I mean, 60% of kids couldn't read at grade level before the pandemic. Now they just lost two years. We need a massive rescue plan for public education in Wisconsin. And Tony Evers just wants more of the status quo. And that's not acceptable. Mike Gallagher, Republican congressman from Wisconsin, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, always appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. And The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We return now to the Guy Benson Show. I saw this story. 
CNN actually ran it. They looked into a Democratic House candidate in New Mexico who's taking on an incumbent Republican in a swing district. And this guy named Gabe Vasquez is campaigning as a moderate, as so many of these Democrats do. Right, they want to sort of pretend for the folks, they're just middle of the road, right? They're, they're independent thinkers. They're moderate. We see this over and over again when, in fact, they are progressives. They are left-wingers. Or when they get to Washington, they vote with party leadership all the time. There's not an independent thought that goes through their brains, or at least nothing that can be determined by their voting record. So here's the lead from the CNN story. A Democratic House candidate in New Mexico campaigning as a moderate in a tightly contested race deleted tweets attacking the oil and gas industry, rationalizing rioting in the summer of 2020, and comparing the Trump administration to the KKK. Oh, imagine that. Try to just memory hole those tweets, Trump as the KKK, justifying or sort of dismissing violent rioting a few summers ago. A lot of the Democrats were doing that. Going after the oil and gas industry where he's trying to pretend that he's a moderate on energy now. Oh, no, we need to. I'm not in favor. Well, of course, on the old Twitter feed back in the day, he was calling the oil and gas industry extremely toxic and other things. So, I mean, I think it sometimes doesn't take that much effort to take the mask off of some of these people. And I think voters writ large, like unless you're Joe Manchin, who may have screwed himself anyway with the Build Back Better Light so-called Inflation Reduction Act, unless you're Joe Manchin or one of a tiny handful of people who have cast meaningful, consequential votes against the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer agenda, every other Democrat should be viewed highly suspiciously. By voters, if they're out there claiming to be moderate or independent or middle of the road, because some of them talk about that, but they don't act that way when the chips are down. Politico, meanwhile, has a story headline today. House Democrats retrench as GOP money floods the map. Seems like some early excuse making about the Republicans just spending all this money. The Democrats don't have a money in politics problem. They're the money in politics party. They spend gobs of cash. The problem is the map is expanding for Republicans because the Democratic agenda is failing and the Biden administration is in real trouble. And you scroll to the very bottom of this Politico story and they talk to a conservative leadership fund. It's a top pack for the House Republicans. And the guy who leads that group says expanding the map has been a key plank of our strategy this cycle. We're now able to seriously contest traditional Democrat leaning seats. And that has forced Democrats into tough decisions about who to cut off and who they can afford to contest. That's the quote. That's the bottom line here. And that smells like triage for the Democrats with 25 days to go until the midterm elections. The Guy Benson Show continues. Final hour coming up next. Janice Dean is here. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
final hour on this Friday. Happy Friday. I'm Guy Benson. Always appreciate you being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. Bonus Benson on the weekends as well. It's on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. I might raise a long drink or two at a tailgate tomorrow. We'll talk more about that later on. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They've just been expanding everywhere. They've been in Georgia for a while and extremely popular here, but they're now in more than 40 states, and they keep growing. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. With us now is Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author, most recently of Make Your Own Sunshine, now host of the Janice Dean podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Janice, as always, it's good to have you here, and happy Friday to you. Happy Friday. I am saluting you with an imaginary long drink Excellent. Well, we need to make it less imaginary soon. I know we keep threatening to do this, but at some point we're going to get together and have long drinks and maybe do a puppy play date, which we will get to the dog situation in a little while. I want to start, even though it's the happy hour, with less happy topics that I do want to talk to you about. Let's start with this. I saw a Daily Beast story, a report claiming that a top aide to former Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, a disgraced now resigned governor, a top aide said that New York State hid the truth on nursing home deaths during the COVID crisis, especially those early days. You lost both of your in-laws in nursing homes to COVID in New York in order to save face. That is not exactly a surprise or a revelation. I think that was always the working theory of that cover-up. But to have at least someone reportedly admitting it is of note, is it not? Absolutely. Uh, that was uh, Melissa DeRosa, right? That's what I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and she did, uh, you know, back when the governor was hiding numbers, she did that during a closed door meeting with Democratic lawmakers, including Ron Kim. Uh, so we kind of knew that. But I mean, if it's proven and, and we have even more proof, then my goodness, that's wonderful. Yeah. So I think that's a sort of more confirmation of a story that broke last year, as you pointed, and I guess it's been resurfaced, or I guess maybe there's more private admissions happening. Meanwhile, the aforementioned disgraced former governor, Andrew Cuomo, he is just itching to get back into the game. He ran some ads months ago from his campaign war chest trying to boost his image and get relevant again. And just within the last few weeks, I know that you saw this. He put out a video with a few announcements, including... This one, in Cut 31, let's listen together. I am starting a political action committee to elect the right people to office. We do not need more panderers. We need producers. We need people committed to fight for change and who get results. We need people who have the character and the capacity to stand up and lead and take the heat that goes with leadership. All right, Janice, so... There was some speculation that he might try to reenter the political realm even this cycle. I guess he didn't quite have the full shamelessness or I guess the polling to suggest that he could do that successfully. So instead, seems like a placeholder to me, at least for now, former Governor Cuomo has started a political action committee to raise money and try to elect, quote, the right people 
to office. This strikes me as maybe a very good sort of shortcut to finding people who should never win office if Andrew Cuomo's endorsing them. <laughs> and I was listening to that. It sounded like he painted in his bathroom. So, <laughs> yes. so I, you know, listen, he is very narcissistic, you know, poster boy for narcissism. And I'm sure it's really bothering him that he is not in the political arena right now. His whole life has really been in that arena, his, yeah. starting with his father. He grew up in the governor's mansion, and then, of course, he was governor for all of those years. He's never known what it's like to not have, you know, 24-7 bodyguards. You know, he has to drive himself around now without security or a chauffeur. Do you this remember just— new. This just reminded me, uh, Janice, do you remember when he was trying to claim while he was under fire for everything that he was just, you know, an outsider and this was the political machine trying to get him? Like He's like the biggest political machine creature in existence. He's a dynasty. He's a dynasty politician. It's really quite something. And I've gotten to the point now, Guy, where, you know, he pops up once in a while. He'll write a tweet. And it's just sort of like, you're, it's so sad. I, I feel it like it's sad. Now, the moment that he comes up and people are talking about a possible real comeback, then, you know, I will I'll get on my soapbox again. But right now, I just think it's kind of pathetic. His successor is Kathy Hochul. She's the sitting governor. She's running to win another term in November. And I just saw a poll out this week that has the race kind of uncomfortably close, at least by New York standards, 10 points I saw. Lee Zeldin was our guest on this program earlier in the week. He's the Republican really charging on the issue of crime. Of course, he had a crime committed just outside his house, bullets flying last weekend. Hochul has been someone that at least initially in our conversations last year and and before that, you were kind of hopeful that she might try to turn things around, be transparent, get to the truth tackle some of these issues of concern to you involving COVID and the nursing home deaths and the state's complicity and all of that. It seems like you have long since soured on her. And I just wonder what you think of her job performance on these related issues as she creeps closer to what she's hoping is an easy reelection. She has been a big disappointment. A year ago this month, we uh, met with her, uh, several family members who lost loved ones in nursing homes, including myself and my husband. And she was very empathetic. She told us she was sorry for our losses, wanted to get to the bottom of this, um, you know, really important uh, to release all the data, uh, which her predecessor did not release. Of course, we know that he fudged the numbers whitewashed them by at least 50 percent. And I was hopeful. I mean, I think I came on your show. I wrote an op-ed. You know, uh, wow, somebody that actually wants to, you know, do an after-action review on what happened in New York, one of the worst responses during the height of the pandemic. And we've gotten nothing. You know, she's made a lot of promises when when she is asked in the press. She says, oh, I'm going to get a blue ribbon panel together and I'm, we're going to go over the good, bad and the ugly. And so far, nothing. Why and not? One, How long are we? What are we waiting for here? I think till the midterms are over. And, you know, I think she wants to sweep it under the carpet. She wants to ignore it for now. But Lee Zeldin has raised the point that one of his, you know, Main things he wants to get done if he gets elected to office 
is have an investigation with subpoena power. So that's very attractive to people like me and over 15,000 families that still want answers. It just seems to me like she's hoping that they can run out the clock. She might know what lurks beneath the surface. So all the lip service to, you know, we need the investigation, blue ribbon panel, all of that. Maybe she just is like, all right, let's get past this election. Let's get reelected. COVID will continue to fade. Those losses will be less acute and less fresh. And a lot of people, except for the most passionate, will kind of forget about it. And we can all just move along. That is perhaps a cynical view, but it seems like a plausible one. Yeah, of course. That's what she's hoping for. But let's just say I don't have any news to break today, but we are actively working behind the scenes uh, just in case, you know, lawmakers don't help us out. So, you know, there there are hmm. things, avenues that we families are going down right now um, where we're, we might have to conduct our own investigation. And I, I'm confident that 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 might happen. Okay, so it sounds like that might be a stay tuned moment for us on this issue. And the moment that you might have news to break on that, please do come back and talk to us about it. In the meantime, Janice, as promised, let's talk about dogs. So in case people aren't familiar with the backdrop here, you and I spoke on the air months ago. Uh, at this point, what, six months ago, roughly? It seems like about half a year. I could be misremembering that. But you were covering the dog show for Fox and Friends, and we started talking about dogs. And I asked what kind of dog you have, and you admitted, well, we actually don't have one, but we want one. I started proselytizing to you about my dog, Roy, and his breed, Bedlington Terriers, and how great they are. You asked me to send a few photos to you. During the commercial break, I texted you a couple photos. You and your family fell in love with Roy and what he looked like and how cute he is. And lo and behold, within a matter of months, you had secured a Bedlington of your very own, Lola, who comes to you via Iowa. Very, very cute dog. I follow your posts religiously on social media about Lola the Bedlington. And I just want like a status check. How is Lola? How are the life and times of Lola? How is the Dean family vis-a-vis Lola? We just need to know more about Lola. I can't imagine my life without Lola. It's like before Lola and after Lola. (laughs) You know, it's really that big of an impact on myself and my family. She's everything, Guy. I mean, I, she, we've talked about this. Coming home from work, I mean, just to have that little face look at you and be so excited to the Mm -hmm. point where she's, you know, peeing on the floor. She's so excited (laughs) that you're home. It's um, it's 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 something I've never experienced. And um, she is part of our family. We take her everywhere. Um, If you go to my social media last weekend, we took her to the beach. Yes. She experienced the beach for the first time and at first she didn't quite get it but once she understood that she could dig forever in the sand she was in heaven doggy heaven yes and so she dove into the atlantic ocean this this girl is so fearless dove into the atlantic ocean i posted the video i had to edit out a small curse word because i was afraid she went right <laughs> into the atlantic and then she came right out and was doing zoomies on the beach, just, oh my gosh, Guy, you have opened up this whole new world for us that I will forever be grateful for.
Well, I just have a smile on my face listening to this, and I actually just texted you a photo of Roy that Adam sent me when I'm gone, like I am out of town right now. Roy tends to sleep in my spot in the bed. And so this morning, Adam took a photo of Roy, and it's very cute with sort of the shadows and the light coming in, uh, you know, in the morning hours. So that's just a little treat of Roy. We send little dog photos back and forth from time to time. And the beach videos were especially joyful for me to watch because the beach zoomies are great. She's just like off and running with that. They just tear around. Bedlingtons in particular, they're very fast. I am a little jealous, I have to say, of Lola's interest in the water. Roy avoids the water like it's death. He is terrified. He likes being on boats. He likes being near the water. But if you ask him to enter the water in any way, he just absolutely will not do it. He won't do it. He can swim. We forced him to do it just to make sure he, if he needed to, he could swim and he's fine. But he does not like it. And for Lola to be at the beach and in the water, I think, is adorable. Well, you, you and Roy are welcome to come and enjoy a beach day together. And maybe Roy will, you know, just get the Lola bug and want to go. Or like maybe follow her into the water. If she yeah, is, if they're I mean, playing together, he'd be like, well, if she's in there, maybe I can go. He's kind of tentative, though. We'll see. You never know. I can't wait for that first play date, by the way. Yes, it needs to happen. And we need to make that happen for sure. And then document all of it whether it's on television, podcast, radio, whatever. It's very important for America, I would say, uh, for America's dogs, beyond Dana's, of course, to become fast friends and for the American people, especially the Fox Nation, to really understand how cute these dogs are. And before anyone rolls their eyes any harder at this segment, we'll take a break because we are out of time with our friend Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News. Make Your Own Sunshine, her latest best-selling book, the Janice Dean podcast available at voxnewspodcast.com and lots of photographs and videos of Lola available on her various social feeds. Janice, have a great weekend. Always wonderful to talk to you. I love you, Guy. Thank you so much. See you soon. You bet. Guy Benson Show back next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Fun conversation as usual. Janice Dean. I wanted to play you some sound. This coming out of the NFL, and I really like this. The head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is Todd Bowles. He happens to be black, and he is facing off his team against the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern kickoff. And the Steelers are coached by Mike Tomlin, who also happens to be black. They are the two African-American head coaches in the National Football League, plus Lovey Smith in Houston. And the league has really been pushing and emphasizing the need to have more black coaches in terms of diversity and this sort of thing. They've gotten some pressure on this from some players and some activist groups, and it's been a point of emphasis for the league. So Todd Bowles was at a press conference this week being asked about the game and other matters by reporters. And one of the journalists decided to ask about this sort of, you know, identity politics and skin color and the race of the coaches and the meaningfulness of the game with the two black coaches coaching against each other and all of it. And I think Todd Bowles gave an answer that definitely does not comport with the identity fixated mindset that some people have. 
And it's hard to argue against it coming from him because he is one of those black coaches himself. He's the one here sharing what's on his heart, on his mind about these issues. And it's not probably what some of the journalists in the room were expecting or wanting to hear because sports journalists like infamously are very often even more left wing than the political journalists. Anyway, here's what it sounded like in the press conference. Todd Bowles, Q&A here, cut 29. You and Mike Tomlin are two of the few black head coaches in the league. I wonder what your relationship is like with them and your thoughts on Steve Wilkes joining that fold. I have a very good relationship with Tomlin. Uh, we don't look at what color we are when we coach against each other. We just know each other. I have a lot of very good white friends that coach in this league as well, and I don't think it's a big deal as far as us being coaching against each other. I think it's normal. Wilkes got an opportunity to do a good job. Hopefully he does it. And we coach ball. We don't look at color. But you also understand that representation matters too, right? And that when you know aspiring coaches or even football players, they see you guys, you know, they see someone that looks like them, maybe grew up like them. That has to mean something. Well, when you say you see you guys and look like them and grow up like them, means that we're eyeballs to begin with. And I think the minute you guys start stop making a big deal about it, everybody else will as well. Ooh, I mean, that is a pretty powerful series of answers by him. And it got a lot of attention on social media. And I think he's just speaking for a lot of people. Judge me based on me, job performance, who I am, and not all this sort of identitarian bean counting that some people are positively obsessed with. The other journalists, but but here's another chance for you to maybe correct your answer, and he was having none of it. I think those are good answers there. And Todd Bowles, may the best team win on Sunday. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, back after this short break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Almost to the weekend here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. On today's show, earlier on, in fact, right at the top of the program today, we welcome back Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, a Republican who is locked in a re-election battle right now down in the Lone Star State. Here's part of that conversation we had with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. The success of what you pioneered has become more and more evident because not only have other Republican governors gotten on board and participated, just the anger, the impotent rage from people on the left trying to explain why what you're doing is so awful and cruel and evil, but then inadvertently they're talking about an issue that is not good for them because of their policies And then they can't, at least as far as I am concerned, they can't really explain why you're the bad guy in this as opposed to the people who are enabling this huge crisis that you're simply giving certain jurisdictions, sanctuary cities, a small taste of. Did you ever expect when you first had this thought and decided to put it into action, did you ever expect that it would, I guess, work this well in terms of shining a spotlight on the problem? Well, it all started out actually just to help out local officials on the border in Texas. I was in a meeting of sheriffs and police chiefs and mayors of all the local communities down there like Eagle Pass, Del Rio, et cetera, uh, and they were overwhelmed with the number of migrants that were being dumped off by the Biden administration, and they needed help. And so I said, listen, I'll take charge of this, and I'll start relieving the pressures from you that you all are incapable of dealing with, 
and I'll start busing them to sanctuary cities across the United States of America. Of course, the first option was an easy choice, and that is the whole problem we have on the border was caused by Joe Biden, and Joe Biden has never been to the border to even see the chaos that he's created. Right. So I chose to take the border to Joe Biden, and that's when we first started busing people to Washington, D.C., and then literally out of nowhere. The mayor of New York started complaining about me busing people to New York, which we had not been doing. But after he kept complaining about it, I thought, well, if he's going to keep complaining about it, I'm going to start taking credit for it. And that's when we started busing them to New York City, which also is a self-identified sanctuary city. And what's important here, Guy, is that this is not a Texas problem that's happening on the border. This is a problem for the United States of America that the United States of America as a whole must deal with in response to it. And that's exactly why New York and Chicago and Washington, D.C., and maybe some other locations need to be involved so they experience the, the, the challenges that are created by these open border policies. It's that they support. To say, oh, say, say it again? Yeah, I mean, they support these policies, but they don't want to actually grapple with the consequences of what they support. Exactly. And so it's pure hypocrisy on their part. Uh, they, they, they spout all these uh, leftist uh, ideolo- ideological agendas, like they want to have uh, open borders, they want to have sanctuaries to these, all that kind of stuff. But when they have to grapple with the realities of it, uh, it's not in my backyard approach. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, the, the mayor of New York and the mayor of D.C. and mayor of Chicago are, are saying. That's uh, exactly this, right. Uh, they, they have a responsibility to step up and start carrying their weight of the open border policies that have been created by Joe Biden's policies. You just name-checked a couple of cities. You said there might be some others. Do you have other destinations in mind that you're exploring? So we will explore options. We, we know that New York and Chicago and other places are getting overrun. You, you may have seen that Mayor Adams is asking for $1 billion to be able to deal with just a few thousand migrants. Listen, we get... Uh, as many in a day as he may get, uh, uh, you know, the entire time. Uh, and, and so it's just astounding. They think they need a, a billion dollars to deal with this. But it shows the magnitude of the problem that's created by the Biden administration. One interesting thing is, is my understanding that both the governors of New York and Illinois have uh, asked the White House to get more engaged in coming up with solutions for the board, which was one of the knock-on effects of what we did. Listen, we—, we Let's go back two and a half years. Uh, under President Trump, we had the fewest border crossings two and a half years ago than we had in four decades. Uh, and now we have the highest number of illegal border crossings ever. There's more than 2.2 million people that came across just this past year. Uh, that is almost the size of Houston, Texas, in one single year. This is something that Texas cannot handle, something the United States cannot handle. My full interview with Greg Abbott, Republican governor of Texas, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, I'm heading to another part of the state of Georgia for some football tomorrow. Meanwhile, producer Christine had her appointment today with her therapist, and my understanding is she did broach the issue on the vacuum cleaner obsession. I don't know how that went. I guess we'll find out together next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. It's the Friday home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. 
Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, free every day. And I am going to be hopping in the car after the show and driving to Athens, Georgia, for tomorrow's football game, University of Georgia, the defending national champions, taking on Vanderbilt. I'm going with my best friend, Mary Catherine Hamm, who's a Georgia grad. So you all know I'm a Northwestern fan. So it has been, except for that week zero win in Ireland over Nebraska, that was the peak of the season. It's been all downhill from there. A lot of bad football. A lot of losses. So maybe I'll actually see a win in person between the hedges tomorrow. And I'd be actually quite surprised if the dogs don't pull it off. But it should be fun. It's a great environment. Fun college town. I'm not really an SEC fan at all. I root against the SEC most of the time. I always root against Notre Dame. Sorry. Almost always. Like I'm trying to think of a scenario under which I wouldn't. And then the SEC is kind of next up on the anti-rooting depth chart for me. But because of Mary Catherine and some other friends and now a tradition for a couple of years getting to some of these games, I kind of do have a soft spot for Georgia. And then they did what they did last year, which was so exciting. So looking forward to that. I would imagine in our car ride, there'll be some traffic getting out of Atlanta. Mary Catherine and I will discuss, as we have been privately, the latest updates in what's happening to her in her career. I'm not sure if you saw this story or heard about it. I would just encourage you to go Google her name, Mary Catherine Ham, and the words quiet suspended. And she wrote an essay explaining how her employer, CNN, kept her off the air for the better part of a year and the reasons why. And it is, I would say, pretty shocking if you don't know the details. She shares a lot of them. And that piece came out a little over a week ago and made quite a stir at least among those who follow cable news. So feel free to take a peek at that. She and I will be discussing that at further length. That's just my guess. And then enjoying some football with some other friends tomorrow. Meanwhile, earlier today in New Jersey, there was a very important summit. Producer Christine saw her therapist, Roy. And I often like to explain here on this program We often try to work through some of Christine's neuroses and traumas and and bad decisions. And I'm her unlicensed, uncompensated therapist. She has an actual licensed and compensated one whose name is Roy. And I had urged her rather strongly earlier in the week to perhaps seek some guidance from him on this. I don't even know what to call it. Saga obsession when it comes to vacuum cleaners where she has blown through like six of them. Just in the last few months, it feels like, threw out a bunch of them, wasn't satisfied, threw them away in the garbage, bought a new one that she was finally satisfied with, and then decided she doesn't like that one anymore, and she's about to go buy another one. And evidently, both yours truly and Christine's husband independently urged her to seek some help on this front. And so my understanding is the meeting happened earlier today. I'm not sure if the entire session was devoted to vacuum cleaners or not. Uh, My father, by the way, who was a vacuum salesman, I think for a little while in college or maybe in high school, I forget all the details. He was urging Christine to get an Electrolux, and I was urging him to not encourage her on this. We don't need more ideas out there. We need fewer vacuum thoughts in her head. Christine, of your session, and you can reveal as much or as little as you'd like, 
But of your session today with Roy, uh, what percentage roughly of it was devoted to this topic? I can't talk to you right now because now I'm Googling Electrolux vacuums. I don't even know what that is. Here we go. I don't even know if they still exist. I think those are the ones that he sold. I'm very... I'm very vague on this. I think he also sold like encyclopedias when he was really young to make some money. And I think he was pretty successful at selling some vacuums. But that was probably, you know, in the 60s or 70s, 70s. It would certainly have been the 70s, I think, at that point. But no, stop Googling new vacuum cleaners, Christine. Let's focus here. Tell us about Roy today. Did we have any breakthroughs, any help coming? Not really. He was a little confused why we were talking about it. So he's like, so let me get this straight. You just keep buying vacuums and you're storing them? I said, no, 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 no. I get rid of the vacuum before. I said, but I just cannot find the right one. And he didn't really feel like it was something that we need to focus on. I mean, listen, we have a lot of other things we got to work on. Okay, so I don't think he wanted to take too much time up with this. But was he maybe not understanding, based on a lack of description by you, the disturbing nature of this, where you would hoard vacuum cleaners, make big public announcements about buying these vacuum cleaners, and then using them for a brief period of time, deciding they were insufficient, and then, yes, like throwing them in a closet altogether, and then throwing them all away, and then buying even more new ones, and now another one you know, coming down the line. Maybe he was not... Uh, properly briefed on the scope of how strange this is. Are you saying that I didn't properly tell him the story? Yes, yes, I am. Because you don't think it's a problem for you. No. Therefore, you're downplaying it for him so he doesn't really understand. I think it might benefit your relationship with him and his effectiveness as a therapist for you if he did a little bit of homework before your sessions by just listening to Bonus Benson on the weekends? I prefer not. I don't need him to listen to that. Why? Um. Wouldn't he be better? He'd be better equipped to help you knowing some of this nonsense and also hearing a perspective other than the, I would say, probably whitewashed propaganda no, that you bring him. I told him. I said, I, I cannot find the right vacuum. And my coworkers think that's a problem. And he said, tell me more. And so I just explained to him that, you know, within the past two years, I've gone through a couple of vacuums. And you spent thousands of dollars on vacuum cleaners. I don't think I said that. Oh. He never asked. He did not ask me how much I've spent on vacuums. Well, I mean, he's not like an interviewer grilling you on Fox News Sunday. Like, he's there to help you, and he needs a more fulsome and complete picture of these contextual situations to, I think, really have the facts at his fingertips to make a difference and make a dent. That's why I think, Roy, if you're out there, if you know Roy, it's important that he become a listener of this show or at least bonus Benson on the weekends. And then he will have a better understanding of what truly he's dealing with in this particular client. I really I really don't like I know I don't want that to happen. I, I, we've come a long way, Roy and I. We've really worked out a lot of things hmm. and I want to just keep going in the direction that we're going. I What's did, the biggest what's the biggest piece of progress you've made with Roy? Ooh, you want to really know? Ooh, we could deep dive here. 
I'm, um, I'm a little scared now, but go ahead. Not, I'll be perfectly honest. I think this also came with age, though, but one of the biggest things we worked on is really not worrying what other people think about you or say about you because his whole thing is you cannot control the narrative of other people about you. Like it's, it's really none of your business, what they think or what they say. You just put out the best version of yourself and not everybody's going to love you. And okay. well, that's good. So you, you're no longer concerned about what other people are saying well, about I, you. And I, I, that's no, we're, we're working on it. I didn't say I was cured. No, I was, I'm, I'm glad that you've been basically cured of this because no. you wouldn't believe what I've been hearing people <laughs> saying about you. But I mean, it's, it's obviously oh not, not really an issue anymore. So I'm glad that you've made that breakthrough. Good for him. And good for you. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> I paid good money to stop worrying about this. Yeah, more or less money than the vacuum tab. Well, I think I found the proper vacuum. I was talking to Dan earlier. Oh, Dan, don't forget, Dan was not here. I had to explain to him the, um, what was it I did? Do you remember? I had to put on some report uh, for Bobby. Remember to get the Dyson? Oh, yeah, you had like a PowerPoint presentation. Oh, the PowerPoint or presentation. Remember that? Yeah, to try to convince him to spend money on the Dyson, which you then did and then got rid of it like almost immediately. But remember Bobby's one card? Remember he sent one PowerPoint presentation card back to me about oh, it? And remember yeah. he said, This presentation sucks. <laughs> well, little did he know how much it sucked given what ended up happening. See, this is the type of color that Roy needs. Well, to but, really, truly help you. But here's the thing. I shouldn't care what you think or Bobby thinks, right? Like, if, if no, I'm really putting... No, I, I, think, I think not caring about what, like, random haters think about you is probably healthy. I think your closest colleagues, supposed closest friends, and husband, you might have more concern about what they think of you, right? Some people's opinions matter. A lot of others don't as much, and I would say Bobby's opinion should be near the very top of people who matter. And I, you know, mine mine is up there, right there with you know Dan Dan and YY. I mean, if we're if we're best friends or whatever, then you should care what we think. I mean, I'm a little worried. I don't think it worked with Roy on the vacuum front at all. No, obviously. Because she's been sitting here looking at promo videos for new vacuums for the past 45 minutes. Oh, well, I'm glad so that she's doing that, paying yeah. very close attention to the Thanks, show Dan. that she's producing. Yeah, she's just like, oh, uh, who did who did we have on? There was some guest. It was Janice Dean. How was she? How did that interview go? I was watching YouTube videos of vacuum cleaners. That's some good producing work right there. It was show prep. Thanks, Dan. Well, I guess it was show prep for this segment. That's good spin there, Dan, that you just gave her. Uh, Wyatt, let's bring you in here as the voice of reason. Uh, are you convinced that Christine is getting the help that she needs? And by the way, have you heard these same things that I've heard about what people are saying about her that she doesn't care about anymore? Cause, Stop! Whew, but anyway, go, go ahead, Wyatt. I, I have heard them. They're, they're very interesting. <laughs> Wyatt! Um, <laughs> No, but we actually, Christine, what we're doing, uh, I think next week, one of the nights that we're, we're all in New York together, we're going to happy hour, wink, mm-hmm. wink. We're all, we're, I'm renting yep. a huge uh, party room in one of these yep. bars. Drinks, lots of drinks, dark bar, and very it's, dark it's, bar. It's mm-hmm. not an intervention. It is just a happy hour that yeah, we're all going to it. together. That's all it is. Will so, it be a bright day? It, it, if, it, if it needs to be in your mind, it will be. And we're all just going to be there to... 
have fun. And, We're and that's all, all hang out. Oh, wait a sec. Oh, my God. I actually just fell for this for a second. I don't like any of this conversation, and I would like it to end now. Well, you're lucky because we're up on a break. So we've got to go. The week is over, but next week is right around the corner, and I'll be in New York for several days for a number of important events, including, well, you know, what we just referenced here. In the meantime, everyone have a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening back here on Monday for The Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.